Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks Podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Carrie Hatley. So Carrie is the head coach at Shred Science Nutrition, a program that's designed to help clients lose weight and build lean muscle to unlock their optimum performance. She's an athlete who has competed in everything from running and cycling to powerlifting and holds a certificate in nutrition coaching. Thanks for joining us, Carrie. Hey, what's up, Jeff? Thanks for having me. So what originally piqued your interest in sports nutrition? That is a heck of a good question to start off with. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think nutrition is the foundation of everything, mm-hmm. everything in life. If you're thinking, if your goals are overall health, nutrition is where you should start. If your goal is performance, nutrition is absolutely where you should start. If your goal is body composition, again, it's 80% nutrition, 20% exercise. So anything that you want to do in life, any of your goals, you get there faster by having your nutrition dialed. Mm-hmm. And so I'm kind of a super geek and all roads lead to nutrition. If you want to have hack your performance, hack your longevity, you know, anywhere you want to get nutrition is where you should start. It's the foundation of everything. Hmm. How did you figure that out? I mean, did you did you know that? Did you figure that out at an early age? Like, did you, were you always into nutrition? Were you always eating nutritiously or, or was there something that kind of sparked this like, huh, maybe I should look into it more? Yeah. Um, well, I started eating just like a normal kid, you know, mm-hmm. no, nothing special in my, in my family as far as like weird dietary restrictions or any particular focus on it. But as I got older and as I started, you know, I was a runner a pretty competitive runner in high school. And Mm. then as I started cycling, of course, cyclists are obsessed with nutrition. And I started really loving being in the kitchen, loving to cook and just starting to notice how different the quality of my training was and my training intensity and recovery if my fueling was on point. So I started Mm. playing around with that. Um, I had a housemate and best friend who is a vegan. And so her and I started cooking together as a vegetarian for five years. So just noticed all of the changes when I went to a plant-based diet. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, eventually kind of played around with the vegan thing with her for a bit, not seriously myself, but just her and I collaborating on a lot of recipes Mm -hmm. and seeing how that affected performance, affected overall, how I felt. And then, you know, eventually started trying some other things like trying paleo diet, reintroducing meat and the profound change that had on my body Hmm. and, and my health. And so just, constantly bringing things in, bringing things out, trying new things, tweaking things and seeing the changes that resulted. Yeah. Interesting. Talk a little bit uh, about your athletic background. You said you started out with running, but you've done a lot of different things and things that I would think require different nutrition perhaps uh, to, to be good at those things. Yeah. So I, started running, um, kind of naturally had some talent there. I was a five-time varsity letterman in track and cross country. They brought me in from as an eighth grader to run on the high school varsity (laughs) team. So that was kind of cool. Um, and got pretty burnt out on running. I was running 
hundred mile weeks there for a while oh, wow. in high school. And it, it was just, it was, it was unsustainable for my body and switched to cycling when I was in college and started commuting to school on a bike. That was my first real interaction with bikes. I, I mean, I had a bike when I was a kid that I rode around, but I kind of lived in the sticks and, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we didn't have a lot of that. So I started commuting and, um, I started kind of the competitive streak came out, started to try to race people on my commute a little bit, which mm -hmm. was of course totally inappropriate. So had some <laughs> friends at school who were willing to cycle across. And so I started trying that out in New Mexico. And then when I moved to Washington DC, I started racing cyclocross more seriously. And, um, I was on the original roster of, uh, crosshair cycling with Bill Shiken, which was all so much fun, lots of good guys there. So I rode for race for crosshairs, moved to Denver, raced out there a little bit, and then just started doing <clears throat> kind of less sanctioned racing, a lot of mountain, like unsanctioned mountain bike racing uh -huh. and alley cat racing and that kind of stuff. And um, then I moved to New Mexico, and and the long training hour cycling, I was ra I was riding about fifteen to twenty hours a week, and it just didn't fit anymore with my new job. Mm -hmm. So I, and I was a skinny bike racer, so I decided CrossFit would be fun. It was very uh. <laughs> in vogue at the time. Yeah. So I started doing that and realized that while I had a huge engine, I wasn't very strong mm -hmm. and started, that was interesting to me. It was an interesting new challenge. I'd never, never been in a gym before, never focused on any strength-based work. So I started focusing on that and absolutely fell in love with it. Um, it took a while for me to get comfortable under a barbell, mm -hmm. but once I did, I really liked it and, you know, so started kind of trending that way and eventually kind of dropped a lot of the endurance, um, pursuits and started focusing mostly on powerlifting. Huh. Interesting. Through all of this, through all your training, I mean, it sounds like, would you consider, and maybe still, do you consider food to be fuel or, or are you like into eating food, like just to enjoy it as well. <laughs> Definitely both. I love food. I'm a big eater, but when it comes down to it, food, food is fuel. And, and I've heard the quote food is medicine, hmm. which I think is inter an interesting perspective. Yeah. I'm not sure if I share it a hundred percent, but, um, you know, the, the implication is, you know, too much of any medicine is bad. Too little is bad. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it, you should have the food dialed not only, for fuel, but also for all of the different needs that your body has. And it's just interesting conceptually to think about the quantity of food you need, the variety of food you need, and using it to, to fill all of your nutritional needs to avoid a lot of health-based complications down mm -hmm. the road. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've done some sort of like experimenting with your own diet over the years as well. And I'm really interested to hear about that. But also, uh, did you train or study to become a nutrition coach? I did. A lot of it was self-experimentation and, um, and just personal quest for knowledge. I'm constantly reading anything I can get my hands on, lots of scientific articles, scholarly articles, listening to podcasts, that mm -hmm. kind of thing. I hold a nutrition coaching certification from Precision Nutrition. And then in school, I have a biology background. Okay. So, yeah. um, so I've had a couple different kinds of flavors of academic settings, um, that, that have helped inform that for sure. And then the real, the real place that I've learned was once I actually started coaching at this point, I have coached almost 400 athletes through shred science. Wow. 
yeah, I'm at 380 something. I'd have to double check to see the latest number, but through trial and error with all of those bodies and different, you know, athletic goals, training regimens, Mm -hmm. eating styles, that has been the biggest teacher. Yeah, I bet. I mean, that's, that's kind of what I was wondering is, is there like a one size fits all, you know, like this is, this is the diet and this is what humans need, or is it, is it more, you know, individual and people are going to end up experimenting or, you know, with a coach under the guidance of a coach experimenting or like on their own to kind of find what works for them? Yeah, I definitely don't think that there is a one size fits all approach. And when I hear people proclaim a one size fits all approach using things like every person should eat meat, (laughs) every person should eat a plant based diet, Mm -hmm. you know, broad generalities like that, I think that definitely the red flags go up for me. And I think they should for everyone because every body is different. Um, Every person's experience in their body is different. And there's no greater teacher than your own firsthand experience, getting in tune with your body and and listening to how, what it's telling you. Mm -hmm. So anything that you learn from your own experimentation, use that and go with it. And I think that's the foundation of a really good nutrition program is just some, some self-reflection and self-experimentation and then just being willing to listen to Mm. the lessons your body tell you. Yeah. So how is your program shred science nutrition different from other nutrition programs? I mean, it sounds like obviously it's not, it's not a diet. I mean, it's more like a coaching relationship. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. I kind of like to say it's not a diet. It's a lifestyle, which sounds (laughs) kind of cheesy, (laughs) but, but it really couldn't be more true. Um, so every diet that I experimented with, and I, I think that most people are familiar with, they, they all basically operate on the same framework. So they conceptualize foods into two basic buckets. So the first bucket is foods that are banned or <laughs> bad, yeah. not allowed on, on the diet. And mm-hmm. the second bucket are foods that are good, foods that are allowed. Uh-huh. Um, and so you're constantly exercising some level of willpower to avoid the bad, the bad foods mm-hmm. and only eat the good foods. Yeah. I have a lot of issues with this approach. One, it's, it's just not scientific to put a moral label on food. You know, there's no food that's inherently bad or inherently good. I mean, um, and then also I just think it's not workable for so many people. I, I mean, we need to exercise willpower in our day to day life for so many other things that are really pretty important. I I don't want to be blowing all of my finite amount of willpower on, you know, not eating an Oreo or something like Mm that. Um, and so I think it's a better approach is being able to theoretically eat anything you want, mm-hmm. but you can't eat everything you want. So the way Shred Science works is it's all one-on-one, and it's all completely customized for every person. We don't use any cookie-cutter calculators. I calculate all the macros myself. Mm-hmm. And when you sign up, you get a macro set. And we can talk about mac- what macros are later, what yeah. that means. But it's basically, I kind of think about it like a budget for money. You know, we all can, we all have a certain monetary budget in our, in our life, right? We can, Mm -hmm. we can buy anything we want with that money within reason, but we can't buy all the things. Right. And it's the same with food. I give you macros and you can hit your targets any way you want using any foods you want. Mm. So you have certain, certain targets you're trying to hit and they aren't even necessarily limits because lots of times people are eating more than they ordinarily would. So you can hit these targets any way you want, but you can't eat all the things. Right. So if you really want a certain food, for example, then 
and that, say that food's a high carbohydrate food, then mm-hmm. you might need to eat a lower hydrate, high, lower carbohydrate food earlier in the day to make room in your food budget for that higher carbohydrate food that you're really excited about later. So it's a really neat way to make the the macros flex for you, mm-hmm. so that they can fit. You know, eating out in social situations, eating while traveling, um, high priority food. You know, it can really flex and and you can make it work with whatever you want is with just a little bit of planning and foresight and budgeting. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. So tell us what what are macronutrients and how to how do you work with that and and use that to help people get fit? Okay, so there are three macros macronutrients. So there's protein, carbohydrate and fat. And each of them do a very important and specific set of things for your body. So we can start with protein. Protein is, I call it the king of macronutrients. It's the absolute foundation of where I start with people with shred science. I Mm -hmm. found that if people get their protein target dialed and they're hitting their protein consistently, everything else really starts to fall into place. So protein is significant. As everyone I think knows, it's really pivotal in building and maintaining lean muscle mass for, mm-hmm. for one thing. That's one of the many things that it does. And lean muscle mass is significant um, because lean muscle mass obviously propels you in your sport, um, protects your, your body from a structural standpoint, but also it burns calories even at rest. So from mm-hmm. a body fat, you know, getting shredded, change your body composition perspective, it's a very, very important macro because the more lean muscle mass you're carrying – the hotter your metabolism is going to burn, so huh. to speak. Interesting. Another really interesting aspect of protein is the thermic effect of food. So anytime you eat any food, a certain amount of the calories in, contained in that food are going to be used by your body just to digest and store it. Mm-hmm. And when we're talking about protein, about 30% of the calories consumed are immediately used by the body just to digest and store the protein. And so that's a pretty big uh, metabolic burn just by eating it. You cause your metabolism to rev up a little bit because it t- takes a lot of energy mm. to digest and that protein. Yeah. So, so you can just by, cut, you can cut those calories. If you're going to eat a bunch of protein and it looks like a lot of calories, you can cut that by 30%. Well, I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I guess theoretically <laughs> we don't really conceptualize it like that, but it's just, it's very important. It just highlights how important it is for body composition change. Yeah. If you're looking to shred body fat, Eating a lot of protein is really a pivotal part of it. And, and that doesn't mean animal protein. Um, it can definitely be plant protein. But right. protein in general is a very foundational piece um, of any diet. And it's important for shred science and for macros. And it's interesting because most diets, like we talked about, they spend all the time talking about what's allowed and what's banned. Mm-hmm. And there's no focus on quantity. Right. I mean, you look at keto, you look at paleo. You look at vegetarian, vegan, it's all good food, bad food, and not how much of any of this should I be eating. Right. Yeah. You can eat a lot of stuff that's supposedly good for you. I've got a friend who he really likes carrots, but he eats so many carrots that it's actually (laughs) not, he's had like health problems because he eats so many carrots. So. Right. I mean, uh, moderation in lots of things, but also just hitting these threshold requirements for your body. If you're training, you know, if you're on your bike 15 hours a week and you're not getting enough protein. Mm Mm-hmm the writing is on the wall that there are going to be issues down the road. Yeah. So um, it's really great to have a target of protein that you should hit and then you can aim for that. So anyway, that's protein. We set a quantity for you and you hit that. That's kind of the foundation. And once you've got your protein down, then we start to look at, um, for example, fat, which is another one of the macronutrients. And 
fat is a hugely important macro for your body. Fat does so many things. Um, a huge array of, of processes in your body are governed by fat, including hormone production and regulation, mm-hmm. uh, cell membrane creation and maintenance, um, helps you with your digestion of your fat-soluble vitamins. You could go on and on with all the things that fat does for your body. And the quantity of fat, because of all the processes it's involved in, is really closely tied to your body size. Mm-hmm. Same way, the protein quantity you need is also really closely tied to your body size. You know, if you're you know, if you're a six foot tall person with X amount of lean muscle mass, you need enough protein and enough fat to support that physical body. Yeah. And when I'm setting macros for people, protein and fat are really tied to body size largely. And there's some fluctuation there depending on what types of sports you're into, what your goals are. But for the most part, that's where we start with mm. protein and fat really and closely tied to body size. Are you tying that to a person's current body size or to the body size that they're going toward that they're, you know, is part of their goal. If it's to, if it's to lose weight or to gain weight or muscle mass, um, are you looking at at where they want to be or where they are? For protein and fat, I look at where they are and support their current body. Mm. And as they lose weight or as their body changes or as their goals change, then we adjust those nutrients. And there's some, there's a few exceptions to that. For example, a person who is a bodybuilder or looking to put on a ton of lean muscle mass, their protein will be different than an uh, athlete who's a runner or cyclist, Mm -hmm. you know, because they have a little bit of a different situation there. Similarly, somebody who wants to eat a heavier fat based diet, um, for lots of reasons would, we would skew that and have them be taking in more calories from fat than I would for just kind of a normal athlete. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, we tie it to body size and make some tweaks as we go and as the body fluctuates. Okay. So that leaves carbs, right? Leaves carbohydrates and carbohydrates are kind of the sexiest of the macros. It seems to be the most loved of all the macros. Yeah, people are the most delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, I call carbohydrate human gasoline because that's literally its only role in the body. Hmm. Um, Fat and protein support a lot of like important processes in the body, but carbohydrates' role is fuel. And because its it, its job is just fueling the body, carbohydrate is the macro that I see the most variation when I set it for different people because it's so closely tied to tied to activity level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, if you're a cyclist who's riding, you know, 15, 20 hours a week, you're going to need a lot more carbs than somebody who's virtually sedentary and walks to work a couple of times a week. It just is what it is. And I think that's where most people really go wrong. Um, when I see people coming in, usually their protein's a bit low and their carbs are sky high. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's, that's one that requires a little bit of work, but there's a huge amount of variety in carbohydrate and depending on what your goals are nutritionally, if you're trying to lose weight and you aren't that active, your carb budget is going to be really low. Yeah. I mean, let's face it, you just don't need that many. And then it becomes very strategic what types of carbs you eat. If you fill your very limited carb budget with some really carbohydrate-dense food like lots of bread and oats and potatoes and rice, you know, nothing wrong with those foods. Those are great foods, but they're really carbohydrate-dense, and so they're going to eat into your carb budget really quickly. So people who aren't very active – they aren't going to have very many carbs anyway. And so those people really should gravitate towards some non-starchy vegetables. So lots of broccoli, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, green Mm. beans, peas, those types of things, because 
they're not very carbohydrate dense and they're full of fiber. So they really will keep you feeling full for longer mm-hmm. and give you a, a large array of micronutrients, which is so important, especially if you're on smaller calories because you aren't as active. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you're saying that protein is some, you know, obviously is one of the macronutrients, perhaps one of the more important ones. Um, and this idea that a lot of people have when they hear protein is they think meat. Um, but you know, that's changing and you've kind of mentioned that you can work with different types of diets and, you know, there's this documentary right now on Netflix, uh, called game changers, um, that sort of deconstructs that idea that athletes need to eat meat to build strength. And I watched it a few weeks ago and was really, um, convinced, I guess. Um, and I'm sure you can speak to it if you've seen the documentary, but, uh, what are your thoughts of the role that meat and animal products play in nutrition, specifically getting macronutrients? Yeah, so I actually haven't seen Game Changers. I have heard it's it's quite compelling. Um, a problem I have, I, I don't think people should get their nutritional information from documentaries about food. It's <laughs> <laughs> a kind of a general statement. I'm sure yeah. there's some good ones out there. I'm sure there are some exceptions, but a lot of the big ones that you know we've seen coming out, it's a one-sided conversation. Yeah. And it's clear it's, from this one there is an uh-huh, agenda just yeah, to just to be slant. out there with it. But it is something that I think will get a lot of people thinking at least, which hopefully is a good thing. Oh, definitely a good thing. And I hope that people watch documentary food documentaries like that and it prompts them to go out and research it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. I think it's really a kind of our human nature to seek out research that further supports our preconceived ideas. Mm-hmm. Example, you know, if you're a vegan athlete, you're going to be predominantly getting your nutrition information from podcasts from other vegan athletes and blog (laughs) posts from other vegan athletes and articles written by vegan athletes. And that's awesome that they're out there researching. And I love that. But Mm -hmm. um, in general, I mean, I think, gosh, wouldn't we all be better and more well-informed if we sought out, intentionally sought out other points of view as well to make our knowledge more well-rounded. So that's kind of my pitch for that. And everyone should, you know, I love it that people are getting interested and excited and the kind of the back to the kind of the gist of the question. I've had a, a lot of vegan athletes and a lot of vegetarian athletes that have gone through shred science. And I've had a lot of people who, who eat a lot of meat go through as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is definitely a way to do it with whichever flavor of diet you are most comfortable with, mm. uh, based on how you feel like your body reacts and yeah. based on you know your ethical and moral priorities. Yeah. And so I can make anything work. We could make, you know, paleo, whole 30, keto, vegan, vegetarian, whatever we can make it all work. Um, are some more challenging than others? Like, like if yeah. you are, are a vegan, it seems like that, that really limits you and makes it more difficult to hit right. some of those targets. If you're a vegan and you're not very active, it gets really tough because vegan and vegetarian diets are inherently very high-carb diets. Mm -hmm. That's just the nature of the types of food that you eat on those diets. You know, everything in the allowed bucket is very, very high-carb. And so a way to make that work if you're vegan or vegetarian and you don't have a lot of calories to play with is to make sure all the carbs you're eating also have a lot of protein. Mm Mm-hmm. So for just an easy swap would be swapping your brown rice, which is all carbon, no protein for quinoa, for example, which yeah. has a little bit more or 
um, swapping some of your veggies that are lower in carbs, like maybe like a butter or lower in protein, like maybe like a butternut squash or something for something that's higher in protein, like green peas or, um, spinach, broccoli, Mm -hmm. something like that. Yeah. So, so making sure that you get a twofer for all of your carbohydrates (laughs) can really help, you know, keep your carbs at the level they need to be, but also get your protein higher. And, you know, a lot of vegan athletes will require some supplementation in the form of plant protein powder, Mm -hmm. which I don't, um, encourage, you know, copious use of, but I think that there's some really great brands out there now that, that make some really just phenomenal, clean plant protein powders that don't have a bunch of funky ingredients. And Mm -hmm. some even have, um, probiotics in them now. And I mean, there's some really great products out there. So I think that supplementing with a protein shake here and there to fill in some gaps isn't a bad thing. Um, and I'm, I'm definitely big on the whole food. I'm a whole foods person. So Mm -hmm. if you get your nutrition from real whole foods, that's best. And if if you can't, I think a little bit of supplementation with some of these good protein products is really helpful for vegan and vegetarian athletes. But if you're a vegan athlete who rides a ton, you have a huge carb allotment and it makes it a lot easier. Yeah. Interesting. So what does your average client look like? I assume that the people you tend to work with are already fit and healthy, healthy. Most of them probably athletes as well. Um, but yeah, what, what are the people look like and what are sort of their goals with taking on a program like this? I have had such a huge array of, of people come to me. I I call everyone an athlete, even if you're, you know, (laughs) virtually sedentary and you just walk to work a couple of times a week, I still call those people athletes because I feel like they have the potential to be athletic at any moment and that they're, you know, born with the potential to be athletic Mm -hmm. and every person's an athlete in their own way. Maybe they haven't started yet. (laughs) Maybe they never will. But, um, so anyway, I just refer to everyone as an athlete. And then beyond that, I have seen the full spectrum of clients I've coached, um, a cyclocross world champion, a mountain bike national champion, um, a lot of really high level cyclists and runners. But I've also coached people who, you know, like I said, are virtually sedentary and the only activity they get is, you know, maybe I can get them to walk to work a couple times a week. Maybe I can get them to hop on a rowing machine for five minutes a day. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it really, people get very focused on training for whatever reason, and mm-hmm. they kind of skip over the nutrition part. Yeah. But the truth is, if you want to change your body composition, you want to change your weight, it's really about 80% nutrition and 20% training. I've seen, I had one, I've had a couple of people, uh, maybe I think five or six now, who are virtually sedentary and have lost 40 or 50 pounds with me just by changing their nutrition. Oh, wow. I mean, these are people that have lost 40 or 50 pounds without exercising which is not something I'm advocating for. I think, I think a lot of movement and activity is so important for a healthy life and a healthy mobile body. But for whatever reason, lots of people either don't want to exercise or can't. And those people can still make a huge amount of progress just by changing their diet. Yeah. On the other end of the spectrum, you can get a high level athlete where everything, the training is dialed, the bike is dialed, the skills are dialed, you know, you have a phenomenal athlete, but that there's just something missing. And that magic sparkle glue is nutrition. You know, if you aren't eating enough protein, for example, or you're not eating enough carbs, or you're not eating enough fat, like things aren't going to work quite right. Something's going to be off. And it might not be so noticeable that, you know, your performance 
is, you know, terrible or something, but it's, it's definitely holding you back from your full potential. And so I found that once people really get their nutrition dialed, everything starts to fall in place. Um, I mean, their training intensity of their training rides increases. And so you're able to, you know, train to a higher level than you otherwise would. So you're getting more out of every single training session. Well, that's huge for fitness. If your nutrition's dialed, you're going to be recovering faster. So you'll be able to train hard again sooner. That it's also huge for fitness. I mean, just those two aspects of getting your, your nutrition dialed can have phenomenal benefits for your training. It can really revolutionize everything. And then there are all the other aspects, like you'll be sleeping better. Again, great for recovery, great for lean muscle mass gains, um, have more overall energy, which gives you more motivation to train. I mean, if you're feeling super de- super tired all day and like have a lot of brain fog, two or three o'clock runs around, you feel like you need to crawl into your desk and take a nap, mm-hmm. you're not going to be ready to get on the bike and and put in a hard training session. You're just, you're just not, the motivation's not going to be the workouts are going to be skipped. So when your nutrition's dialed, obviously there are huge benefits to performance, but there are all these other non, non scale, non, you know, power to weight benefits like better overall energy, better mood, better sleep, um, better digestion, better recovery, you know, all of those things really make for a better athlete and a, and a better human, happier human, better family member. I mean, yeah. when you get your nutrition dialed, it sounds like, oh, this is, there's no way this can have this much of effect. But I've had so many clients come to me and say, I didn't know my body could feel this good. Hmm. You know, I, you, you kind of reset and your new normal becomes this, this situation where you're, waking up to alarm to an alarm every day you're having to have you know two three cups of coffee just to feel awake you kind of slug around the office want to take a nap at two or three try to will yourself to get on the bike have a lackluster workout if you even get on there and then sit in front of the TV and then when it's finally time for bed you've been tired all day and you just lay there in bed and you can't fall asleep <laughs> you know what I mean yeah, yeah I'm sure that sounds familiar to a lot of people yeah and it's like oh well this is just how it is this is just how it, how it is. This is how it feels. Mm-hmm. Well, that is none of that is normal. It does not have to be like that. <laughs> yeah. And uh, it's pretty amazing how good you can feel when you're pop- properly fueled. Hmm. What I mean, what do you think in your experience, what's sort of the wake up call for people to get them interested in this? I mean, it sounds like a lot of the clients you work with are athletes and they're looking to take their performance to the next level. Um, but yeah, I mean, it seems like there are so many more people who are worried about their body composition or, you know, they have health stuff that they're dealing with, you know, whether it be heart condition or it's, you know, cholesterol or those kinds of things. So, mm-hmm. what I mean, what do you think for most people that it takes to get to that point where they are interested in learning about it? Yeah, I think most people have tried a bunch of things and they, quite frankly, are pretty desperate. I've had a lot of people that come to me and when they are sending me their initial data and, you know, I'm corresponding with them for the first time, you can just hear the frustration in mm. their emails, yeah. um, in, in their little typed voices. <laughs> and, um, yeah, I think a lot of people have tried a lot of different things. Nutrition is luckily, it's pretty cool. A lot of people are thinking about it. A lot of people are thinking about nutrition and diet. A lot of people are thinking about food quality, and there's so much information on the internet, which is wonderful. And, and, you know, kind of like what we were talking about with game changers, people's interest is peaked. And so they start to go out and look for answers and they start to try things. And, um, sometimes people try things and they don't work out so well. And then they try a few more things and then they just decide, you know what, I need to get some help. 
Yeah. I need to try something else. Why is nutrition so hard? I mean, it, you know, it seems like we're, we're animals, we're beings that <laughs> should know like mm-hmm. what to eat and, and this shouldn't be so difficult, right? Like no other animal that I know of has such a hard time, like figuring out the right things to eat to stay healthy. So why, why is that? And how long has this been like a problem? Right. I mean, part of the reason it's so hard is because there's so much information out there and so much of it is, um, kind of either put out with a, with an agenda or just put out from a good, honest intention, but you know, with this, with an obvious slant or without the research backing it or whatever. So it gets pretty dizzying trying to tease all of this stuff out. But I mean, it, it doesn't have to be that hard. If we were still in a position where we, where we, we were eating real whole foods, mm-hmm. sitting down at dinner and eating, paying attention to how we felt, putting our fork down between bites, not having the TV on in the background, yeah. you know? So you think this is like a recent thing, like the last 50 years maybe is, is yeah, when we've kind of messed it all up. I mean, look at all the things that have changed, you know, in the last, you know, however many, we'll say 50 for, cause that, that was your example. I think it's probably close ish. Mm-hmm. I mean, corn syrup is in everything. Sugar is in everything. Yeah. Um, all the foods that are marketed to us are sweet or salty and high in fat. And they have a bunch of nasty oils that causes, you know, a lot, large inflammatory response for people, but they're delicious. And it really (laughs) is more delicious than ever before. It's more delicious (laughs) than ever. And it's made of less like real food than ever before too. So people aren't eating whole foods anymore. Um, for the most part, lots of people are eating a lot of processed foods, a lot of, um, GMO foods are eating a ton of sugar mm-hmm. and, and, and I don't blame them. I mean, it's hard to resist that stuff right. because I mean, that's the animal food. nature again is like, we're wired to, you know, especially with sweet stuff because we know that that's energy, it's energy dense. And like, that's just kind of how our reptile brain works. Exactly. And once you start down that path, it's really hard to get out of the cycle. So say you start your morning with a cup of coffee with sugar in it and mm-hmm. caffeine that revs you up then on an empty stomach. Cause you've been essentially fasting all night to some, to some amount of hours while you slept, you know, what do i see so many people when I travel or when I, you know, go into other settings, you know, what are some common breakfast foods like bagels, cereal, pop tarts, pastries, mm-hmm. you know, um, potatoes, toast, all these things are very high carb foods right. with little to no protein and sometimes little to no fat. And so that immediately spikes your blood sugar, um, which will pretty shortly after drop. And mm-hmm. when that happens, you feel absolutely terrible right. and you crave carbs again. And so you do it again. And then what do we, what do we have for lunch? We have sandwiches, we have pizza, we have pasta, you know, we have these, uh, you know, more carbs basically. Mm-hmm. And the exact same cycle happens. So all day you're on this roller coaster where you're spiking your blood sugar and then dropping it. And then of course you're going to crave carbs again, spike it and drop it. Where if we were eating more whole foods, first of all, like lots of non-starchy vegetables, it wouldn't spike your blood sugar to the same extent. And then if we were also tempering that by eating lots of protein, lots of healthy fats, your blood sugar just stays really nice and stable Mm -hmm. and you don't have these peaks and valleys. And it just makes you... It causes you to have more energy overall and just fewer of the extremes, mm-hmm. which is really great. Um, once I started tracking macros, and I've heard this from lots and lots of my clients, that weird afternoon slump where you just can't keep your eyes open, that disappears. Huh. That's not something that I have experienced for years. 
I have really steady energy all day long. And that's something I hear all the time as feedback is I have so much energy Hmm. all day. You know, people start to kind of just jump out of the bed and they don't even need their coffee anymore. I mean, I don't tell them to stop drinking their coffee if they (laughs) love their coffee because, you know, I'm not that kind of a person that tries. I I really try not to like exclude foods for people, especially things that bring joy. But Mm -hmm. really, lots of days I don't. I mean, I didn't drink my coffee for a couple of hours today. I just had a glass of water and I was good. So it really is quite different. Yeah, I mean, that's a big side effect, having more energy. I mean, that's way more valuable, I think, to most people than any of this stuff, right? I mean, you know, moving up from third to first on the podium, like that's exciting. But, you know, being, being, having more energy to do like everything that you want in your life, um, that's pretty powerful. You're totally right. I mean, people come to me to lose weight usually and to improve their performance and they end up being so excited about the energy that they have and just how much better they feel. I mean, I'm not a doctor, so I'm not doing shred science for any sort of medicinal purpose or to treat any medical conditions, but I've had a ton of athletes and clients who've gone off of their medications through Mm. shred science. Not because I'm treating their illness, but because, you know, when they're getting the quantity of fat that their body needs to to produce hormones optimally, then they don't need their thyroid medication a lot of time. Mm. When they start to incorporate more non-starchy vegetables because the other things, the other carbs they were eating don't fit into their ma- macro budget anymore and they start eating more nutrient-dense, vegetable-based, you know, diet for their carbs, they can go off their, um, you know, high blood pressure medication it just is something that happens. They'll go to their doctor and the doctor says, wow, all of your metrics are better. You don't need this medication anymore, which is a pretty cool, I wouldn't say unintended side effect, but (laughs) definitely that's not why we're doing it. You know, I'm not treating those things, but it's pretty neat when that can happen. Yeah. Well, obviously your program is built around this idea of the macronutrients, but I also want to ask you about timing. I mean, you kind of alluded to this talking about how people's blood sugar sort of spikes and drops during the day. And, um, I don't know, I was just thinking of like intermittent fasting, how that's kind of a hot trend right now. Does timing have anything to do with your program or, or is that like an important part or, or does that not matter as long as you're doing the macronutrient thing? Oh no, timing is huge. So I kind of think of it as a pyramid. So the bottom part of the pyramid is just getting your calorie balance in, right? So we want to make sure that you're eating just the right amount of calories to support your activity level and Mm -hmm. your goals. Not too many calories and not too few. If you eat too many calories in general, we've seen a a ton of health problems associated basically with overconsumption of food. Right. You know, diabetes, lots of cancers when you distill it down really is exacerbated by just eating too much um, and on and on. The list goes on. If you eat too little, that's also not a good thing. I mean, your body starts to shut down less essential processes when it doesn't have enough food. So we can see a lot of like reproductive dysfunction and hormone dysfunction Um, bone density issues when calories are overly restricted. Hmm. So the very first foundation of the pyramid is just getting like the calorie balance right. And then from there, we break that down into macros. So you have your optimal amount of calories to support your sport and your goals and your training. Then we break it into how many macros, you know, do you need for each. And then the next level up on the pyramid, once you've got your calorie balance down, your macros are dialed and you're hitting them, then the next most important thing is timing. So timing is hugely important. 
in general, um, I encourage people to time their nutrients throughout the day where they're eating their protein steadily throughout the day. Mm-hmm. Your body needs protein so often and a pretty nice steady stream of it that I encourage people to try to eat protein steadily throughout the day. So when I give you your protein target that you're supposed to hit, I have you try to kind of conceptualize how many meals you eat in a typical day. So for me, I eat breakfast, lunch, I come home from work and I'm starving and I eat like a mini meal then and I eat dinner. So four for Mm -hmm. me, but you can eat as many as you want. If you want to eat six, that's fine. If you want to eat three, that's fine. I mean, I don't dictate that, but people kind of have a natural rhythm there and I encourage them to just go with their body and what feels right, eat when they're hungry, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So break your protein target down by the number of meals that you eat, and then you have a mini protein target to hit throughout the day. So that makes it easy to get a nice steady amount of protein all day long. Then carbohydrate, again, carbohydrates function in the body is for gasoline. It's human fuel. So we want your carbohydrate to bookend your training. Okay. So if you, so if you train at lunch... You want to eat one to two hours before you train. So maybe that's like a late breakfast or a mid-morning snack. And you want that to be pretty high carb because you're going to eat that. And then one to two hours later, you're going to go train. Mm -hmm. So you need to have your glycogen stores topped off. You need to have carbohydrate in your body. Then you train. If you train for a really long time, then that's a whole nother thing and you need to refuel as you go. And we can talk more about that. But say you're training for an hour or something. Mm -hmm. You don't really need any additional carbs during that hour, assuming that you ate a good carbohydrate dense meal an hour or two before. You still have plenty of carbohydrate in your body to to execute that hour of training and you'll be fine. Then as soon as you get off the bike, you need to eat your post-ride meal. And that, again, should be pretty high in carbs. So we're bookending that, that training with your pre-ride meal and your post-ride meal, which have pretty high carbs and, again, your moderate amount of protein because you're eating your protein steadily throughout the day. And hitting those two meals on either side of your training right is very, very important on the front end for training intensity and on the back end for recovery and and actually putting – those carbs that you eat and your post-training meal back into your muscles, back into your body to build that fitness that you just was hard fought on the bike. So timing your carbs around your workout and during your workouts really, really important. And that's when you should eat most of your carbohydrate. I tell my athletes at least 50% of their carbs should be bookended around their workout. But for Mm -hmm. me, about 80% of my carbs are pre, during, and post-workout. I eat a huge amount of my carbs for the day right there. Um, and you're so one to two hours before I train and then within an hour after I finish training. Okay. So yeah, drinking a beer after a mountain bike ride, is not just a social thing, right? I mean, it sounds like that is potentially a good way to get your carbs right after your ride. Well, a beer after riding is, um, something oh, no, I, don't say it's no, bad. No, I am not bad. saying it's bad. I don't really <laughs> use the word bad that okay. often. I love having say a beer. It's not after, good. Yeah, no, I love having a beer after a mountain bike ride. But those aren't the kind of carbs we're looking for. I would say have a beer, but also have like some sweet potato and chicken or something like that. That doesn't sound thing. like a post ride snack to me. <laughs> <laughs> Pizza. Well, it could be whatever flavor you want. Yeah. Um, and then your fat you want farthest away from your workout. You really don't want your fat to be before, during, or after your workout because. Fat really is the slow. Fat is the slowest macro to digest, and it really slows everything down during these crucial periods where you need 
your carbohydrate and your protein to be very bioavailable. So you don't want fat in there kind of just like clogging the yeah. system and slowing everything down kind of thing. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not it's not a huge deal. It's just if we're finessing this and if we're going for optimal timing, I keep fat out of it. Unless you're you're a carnivore and if you eat meat and there's a little bit of fat tied up in your lean protein, for mm-hmm. example, if you have chicken breast and there's a there's gonna be a bit of fat there, that's fine. That's not a big deal. But you wouldn't want to add a bunch of fat like high fat cheese yeah, or pizza yeah. or avocado. Yeah, pizza that for that reason, pizza's not the <laughs> not best most fried food. Um, but it's not horrible. I mean it's high carb, so it has that going for it. Yeah. But I try to eat my fat farthest away from my workout and also because I'm having all my carbs around my training, I don't have any carbs left after. Mm-hmm. So, so for example, using the example of training at lunch, you know, you have a, a late breakfast that's high carb, moderate protein. You have your post-training lunch of, you know, high carb, moderate protein dinner. There are no carbs left hardly. There's a little bit, but only 20% of my carbs are left for dinner, but I have a huge amount of my fat left. And so a great meal there would be like meat and veggies with like some nice nuts and avocado, some olive oil or walnut oil drizzled on top, um, maybe some cheese if you're into that, and a big giant salad with lots of vegetables or mm. just some grilled vegetables. Um, so I try to keep it pretty low carb, moderate protein, and pretty high fat for dinner. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like timing is pretty important in addition to, you know, just getting the right building blocks in there. And once you get your timing kind of dialed, it really helps moderate your hunger levels throughout the day. Because I don't know about you, but I'm sure, but definitely me and I'm sure a lot of your listeners, I'm ravenous after a ride. Mm-hmm. Like I want to eat all the things. And so <laughs> I just set it up so that I know I'm going to get a huge amount of my carbs right after I ride. And it's great. And then by the time dinner rolls around, maybe I'm still full from that, you know, giant post-ride lunch that I had. And I'm good with with some vegetables, a lot of healthy fat and meat. But another thing is fat is incredibly satiating. I mean, fat is delicious and it's very calorically dense. Mm -hmm. So some nuts, some seeds, some healthy oils, avocado, some cheese, all those things really do fill you up nicely. And so it sounds like, oh, she just has this sad dinner of like vegetables. (laughs) me but it's one of my favorite meals for sure because all those healthy fats are so yummy yeah cool so you've worked with a number of different types of athletes over the year i want to focus on cyclists what is like the number one nutrition issue that a lot of cyclists are going to face yeah most of my athletes have been cyclists so i would say probably 70 percent of the people i've coached have been cyclists Mm. so um definitely feel comfortable answering this and catering that to this population and your listeners. In general, the biggest thing I see when people come to me is they're overeating carbohydrate and they're under eating protein. Hmm. So if we can flip that, that's huge. And the next thing I see is that people have, I thought people were pretty savvy with how to fuel for rides and how to fuel for races. No, <laughs> people have no idea. It yeah. is hilarious. Some of the things that I've seen, um, <laughs> So some some really bad examples. I had one racer who ate a big salad right before he went to the starting line. Oh geez, yeah, that doesn't um, sound right. Yeah, some people, a couple who you know, the chocolate milk is still like this thing for some reason as like a great post ride fuel. Yeah. Um, you know, ice cream right after or hmm. really heavy high fat things like, you know, I'm gonna eat 
I don't, I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of at a loss for example, yeah. but, they're, but they're how do people get really that? Like, like, do people just kind of come up with this on their own? You think, or, you know, then they get superstitious and they're like, Oh, well, last time I ate a big salad before the race and I did great. Maybe so. I mean, I think in general people are trying to make healthy decisions. So maybe that's where, you know, the salad example was coming from. Mm-hmm. Um, the chocolate milk thing, I don't know where that came from, but that's like the stuff of like yeah. well, legend at this point. It's like, <laughs> I feel like everyone does the chocolate milk or lots of people yeah. do the chocolate thing. And Yeah, we, we had an article recently um, where someone looked at that, you know, the recovery drinks, like you can buy the pre-mixed ones and, uh-huh. you know, he compared like three or four of them and then ch- compared those to chocolate milk and, you know, according to his analysis, chocolate milk was good and much cheaper. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't sound like scientifically that that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fat. I mean, I guess the carbs are there, but I just think that there's so much opportunity to do better. Mm-hmm. So for example, for like my mountain bike racers and my cross racers, for them, I say, you're going to race. And then as soon as you cross the line, it's a party because <laughs> that's what cross and mountain bike racing is, you know, it's this fun party and people are going to be handing you beer and their food trucks and it's a blast. Right. Mm -hmm. And you should 100% partake in that and make sure it fits in your budget. But as soon as you cross that line, especially if you're racing the next day, like if you're doing a double day cross race Mm -hmm. or a mountain bike stage race or something, if you're racing the next day, then the hour after you get off your bike is all business. It's not party time yet. Mm-hmm. And so what I encourage my athletes to do is to make a smoothie at home before they leave and toss it in a cooler. So that can have bananas, maybe some spinach. Um, maybe you want to do like a you know chocolate with powdered peanut butter because that's pretty low fat. Um, things like that. You can mm-hmm. mess with it. Whatever whatever you like, you know, whatever kind of smoothie you like, make sure it has a moderate amount of protein and, a, you know, pretty high carbohydrate throw it in your cooler, make it ahead of time, throw it in your cooler, cross the line, change out of your kit, drink your smoothie from your cooler. And Mm. then your recovery is, is pretty taken care of for. And then you can go off and, you know, enjoy the party atmosphere. Yeah. A smoothie though, I I tend to think of like milk or ice cream or something. Right. And it sounds like, no, this is a different kind of smoothie. I would, I would make it different. <laughs> I would have the ice cream like for your dessert with dinner. Okay. Maybe not ice cream, but milk, right? Like what's the base of a smoothie that doesn't have a lot of fat in it? So you can make it with non-fat milk if you, if you're into dairy. Okay. If you're not, <clears throat> almond milk is great. I would stay away from coconut milk because the fat content is too high for mm. this purpose. Yeah. In general, coconut milk is wonderful and I definitely have it in my diet. But again, I try to reduce the amount of fat that's around my training. So you wouldn't want coconut milk for a post-race cake. Mm-hmm. Um, so your smoothies don't have to have a milk, though. Um, they could be water-based or they can be coconut water-based. That's an easy way to get some carbs. Um, a lot of my smoothies are water-based, actually. And okay. I'll just put bananas in there to make them creamy. Mm-hmm. And I, I fill my blender up with spinach every time I make a smoothie because it's pretty sweet and you can't taste it. And so it's mm. just this magical background ingredient that you aren't even really aware is there <laughs> that adds a bunch of uh, micronutrients. Yeah. So it's just kind of like an, a, an easy freebie to just toss in there. So I'll fill my blender up with spinach, put some bananas in. Well, not bananas, plural. For me, I'm I'm pretty small, so about half a banana is plenty of banana for oh, me. Okay. Um, maybe another fruit if I want. Uh, maybe a peach or, so, or half a peach or something. And then a protein powder. 
I usually will do a protein powder in my recovery smoothie because there's no other way to really ramp that protein up enough without using nuts, which we want to kind of shy away from because the fat. Yeah. So yeah, I'll just do a blender full of spinach, half a banana, scoop of protein powder, and I'm usually good with that. It's really simple and easy. But if you want it creamier, some almond milk or low fat, um, low fat cow milk or low fat alternative milk would be fine. Cool. So aside from nutrition and well, I mean, really, it's not aside from it. It's this is all related. But what would you say is sort of the number one strength issue you see with the clients that you work with? Yeah. So because of my because I went from mostly endurance sports and then started focusing on weight training, strength training, I feel like I've had a really deep dive in how the body works, how the muscle groups work together, how tissues work. And in particular, how cycling really sets you up for some pretty serious muscle imbalances, mm. which when you take a step back and think about it is pretty obvious, right? Look yeah, at this position all that legs, you're in. Right? Yeah. Well, and then you're in this weird crouched over position mm-hmm. where the whole front side of your body is constantly contracted, right? <laughs> yeah. Your biceps are flexed, your hip flexors are tightened. It's all quads. It's all biceps. It's all chest. Like you're working the front side of your body so hard. The backside is all elongated and you compound that with sitting a lot like many of us do mm-hmm. either in our commute or for our desk job. It's really a similar position that we're in when we're cycling. Mm. You know, again, it's like every, the whole front side of the body is contracted and kind of hunched over and the backside is elongated. And what I found that leads to over time is that the posterior chain, so the whole backside of the body in cyclists is really pretty underdeveloped hmm. whereas the front side of the body is overdeveloped and so i've seen a lot of cyclists that go into the weight room and they're really quad dominant they have trouble engaging their hamstrings and their glutes and for many cyclists their glutes don't even engage i mean maybe you can relate to this or some of your listeners can when was the last time when you sprinted out of the saddle you felt your glutes engaged or <laughs> your glutes were sore the next day yeah I mean, for lots of cyclists, their glutes never get sore. Well, why Why is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? That This is the largest muscle group in your body. Your hamstring and your glutes are crucially important for power, for climbing, for punching out of corners if you're a crosser, for punching up, you know, st- short, punchy climbs if you're a mountain biker. I mean, you need you need your posterior chain. Yeah. It's hugely important. And, yeah. and even just getting away from the cycling aspect, just for being an overall well-functioning human being, if the whole backside of your body is underdeveloped and isn't engaging, you're setting yourself up for all kinds of dysfunction Yeah, where you can have issues with your knees. I mean, a lot of cyclists have issues with their knees, with your hips, with your back, because the whole backside of your body isn't, isn't working properly. It's so underdeveloped. And so it's been pretty cool focusing on weight training and just with my own journey. And then I've been corroborating that with my experience working with other clients. It takes a lot of work to get your posterior chain, <laughs> yeah. you know, working again. And I'm a huge fan of strength training, um, for cyclists, not just to be a over, have an overall like better functioning body, but to be better at sport. Because when you can get when you can balance out some of those muscles, you're going to see major increases in power. And the cool thing about cycling is all of this is measurable, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if you do something, you can see whether it worked or not yeah. based on your power meter. 
based on your data. It's, it's pretty neat. And that's pretty unique compared to other sports. I mean, if you're a soccer player and you use something, you're like, I don't know, I felt a little faster, but I can't really tell. Right. I mean, if you're a cyclist, you know, right away, if the time and effort you're putting in is, is resulting in power increases. And so, yeah, definitely a big fan of people going in and <clears throat> doing some strength training in their off season and a little bit. I mean, if you can get a high enough volume in your off season that your body can handle it, then you can have a small amount of strength training throughout your season and it'll really help increase your power. And I've heard a lot of cyclists say, you know, they, Oh, I don't want to add any lean muscle mass and that'll just make me heavier and that'll make me slower on the bike. And I think that that's pretty short sighted and misguided. I mean, I'm not trying to make any cyclist look like a bodybuilder first of all, <laughs> right. and it would require a lot of different inputs to change your body to that degree. So you don't have to worry that you're going to go into a weight room and come out, you know, looking like a bodybuilder. <laughs> You're just not. Right. Um, but if you do gain a little bit of lean muscle mass, the amount of body fat that you're losing is going to balance it out most mm. of the time. Yeah. That's what I've seen. When lean muscle mass increases, body fat decreases to the point that it's almost like a negligible change. So I'm a good example of that. So when I started tracking macros, I had been powerlifting already and I was gaining a lot of muscle, but I just looked kind of puffy. And that's really what led me to macros because I wanted to lean out more. I wanted to show some of these muscles that I've been building. And I tracked macros for, um, well, I've, I've been tracking for a couple of years, three years now, but I tracked for four weeks, saw no changes in weight. But by the end of the four weeks, my weight was exactly the same, but I had like totally ripped six pack and really popping muscles. And my weight didn't change at all. I'm sure I increased my lean muscle mass with the protein a little bit, um, but a lot of it was already there. But the body fat losses, you know, balance out any any of that. So, I mean, that's not going to be a rule for everyone, but I, I wouldn't be scared of going into a gym and gaining weight. I wouldn't let that be yeah. a deterrent. And instead, I would go in and try to work some posterior chain exercises. So anything that targets the hamstrings, the glutes, and the and your back. It's going to be great. So reverse flies are great. Anything for your triceps, lots of rows. They're all different row variations. Those are all fabulous for your glutes. Um, you know, getting comfortable with a deadlift and definitely do this with a trainer because, you, you know, I'd hate for somebody to, you know, not be lifting unsupervised and get hurt and not be able to ride. So definitely work, work with the deadlift with a trainer because it is kind of a complicated movement. But once you get it, I mean, every cyclist should be deadlifting and squatting. It would just result in huge performance gains for them. Hmm. So deadlift, squat, and then, any, you know, again, anything for hamstrings and, and glutes. There are tons of – the internet is just full of glute exercises. That's pretty easy to find. And, and if you aren't feeling it in your glutes, you know, make sure that you're activating them. So that's another area to explore yeah. on the internet is glute activation because – you know, we need to get your glutes firing and then other things will start to fall into place. Yeah. So finally, I want to ask you, you know, you've been talking about tracking these macronutrients. Is that difficult? I mean, what's the process Do people like you have to start reading labels really carefully and like keeping a spreadsheet of everything you eat or is it, is it easier to do than that? It's pretty easy. Well, I say it's easy. So the first couple of weeks is tough. It, there's definitely a pretty steep learning curve. Um, but after the first couple of weeks, it gets much easier. Um, so don't be discouraged if this description I'm about to say sounds a little overwhelming <laughs> because it is a little overwhelming for the first two weeks. But it's magic after that. It just becomes so easy. And now for me, it's totally automatic. I don't even have to track them formally. I can just track them all in my head and 
and just go for feel. I just eat intuitively. Hmm. So you can get to that point. But when you're first starting out, you get your set of macros that you're trying to hit. And then there are a bunch of free apps you can put on your phone. The most common one is one called MyFitnessPal. It's totally free. Um, I think you have to pay to program your macros in, but if you just remember them in your head, it's only three numbers. So most people can do that. Mm -hmm. Um, say you want to eat an apple, you open up the, my, my fitness pal app, you type in apple, you weigh it. It's say it's an eight ounce. Apple. <laughs> you weigh you put it. In, you have to mm -hmm, weigh it. So you need mm -hmm. to have a scale. Yep. So you have a food scale. Okay. You weigh it, you enter it in, boom, it'll spit out the macros for you. And then you just enter every food you eat into the app and it'll track it all for you. Okay. So at the, any point in the day, you can see where you're at on your total. So you can kind of see where you're at on your budget. Um, and the weighing part does sound like a total pain, right? Um, it really gets pretty easy, especially if you're prepping a bunch of your food at home. Mm -hmm. It's really easy to throw it on the scale. And if you're not ready for that step, you can wing it by estimating um, or you can use like cup measurement, tablespoon measurement. I don't encourage that for people like people that track with me are going to weigh their food. Okay. But if you're just trying to kind of ease into this, it's not precise enough usually to have the big changes you're looking for. We need a little bit more precision. We need better quality data, which is why I like the clients to weigh their food. Um, but you can kind of get a flavor for it mm. by estimating. And then once you get really good at weighing your food, that starts to become automatic too. I mean, you can throw four ounces of chicken on your food scale and you can guess at what it's going to be before you even see the number on the scale and get pretty close. Yeah. And then when you go out to eat at a restaurant and the waiter brings you your plate, you can look at that chicken and you can be like, that's like five ounces of chicken, <laughs> you yeah. know, and you see, so you get pretty good at eyeballing it and it becomes a fun party trick. Yeah. Interesting. And so it can become pretty automatic pretty quickly with just a little bit of experience. But yeah, those first two weeks are tough, but you know, so are all the other things that you're currently doing, you know, <laughs> it's tough to wake up and have to drink three cups of coffee before you feel awake. And it's tough to suffer through these rides and feel like you're putting in all this time and you're not seeing any benefit. And it's tough to have no energy all day. And it's tough to go through, you know, your sixth mountain bike season and still feel like you suck, you know, mm -hmm. like all of those things are hard too. So right. at some point at the end of the day, you just kind of, you pick your hard. Right. Yeah. That's, that's a really good point. Well, thank you so much, Carrie, for taking the time to talk with us. I know I've learned a ton about nutrition and training and I know our listeners uh, have as well. So thank you. Thank you, Jeff. This was a lot of fun. So you can learn more and connect with Carrie at shredsciencenutrition.com. And we'll have that link in the show notes as well. That's all we've got this week. We'll talk to you again next week.